a church, this church in Corinth that we've been reading about, that Paul wrote this letter to, it was, it was a large church as far as we can tell. They had some dramatic conversions in this church. They were benefited by renowned Bible teachers of the day. Men like Apollos and the Apostle Paul. That church was full of spiritual phenomena, including obvious miracles and healings and prophecy, speaking in tongues. And all of this happened, and this church grew very fast. Remember, this church, as Paul writes this letter, it is only five years old. And so it's no surprise they needed instruction from their founder, Paul. And that's why he writes this letter. There were factions in the body. There were open arguments and fights. Some of the members in the church were having their physical needs neglected. And all of that and more, it was on full display when they would gather together for worship on Sunday morning. And so Paul writes chapters 12 through 14 in this letter, specifically challenging the Corinthians to get back to building one another up as a church instead of tearing one another down. Here is a sampling just from these three chapters, and hear this theme. Back in chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then chapter 12, verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In chapter 14, verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. And verse 5, the prophecy and tongues in Corinth were so that the church may be built up. Then in chapter 14, verse 12, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then at the end of this section, in chapter 14, verse 26, Paul says, let all things be done for building up. Now ask yourself, why did Paul have to say that over and over and over again? They weren't doing it. They weren't building one another up. So here we are now, chapter 13. It's, it's right in the middle of all those verses that I just quoted from chapter 12 and chapter 14. It's holding on to chapter 12 and it's holding on to chapter 14. Right in the middle of Paul challenging the Corinthians to build one another up. And in this chapter, what he does is this. He gets to the very root of the problem. And it's a lack of love. That's the root of the division. 
It's the root of tearing one another down. It's the root of the fights and the quarrels. It's the root of the jealousy. There was a lack of love in Corinth. Of all the wonderful things happening in that church, and there were many wonderful things happening, of all the miracles, of all the spectacular acts of service and ministry, none of it mattered without love. None of it even mattered without love. The same, of course, would be true for us as a church. Without love, nothing else we do matters. If I don't have love in my heart for God and for you, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. Of all the great things that you might do, of all the great things that you might say, if you don't have love for God in your heart, if you don't have love for others in your heart, if that's not the motivation, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. Now, I do think by God's grace and only God's grace, we are, we're not like Corinth in many ways. There are, there are not factions here. There is not open quarreling and fighting. We do it behind doors. <laughs> There's no obvious division. No members of this church are being physically neglected, but we can always grow in our love for God and for one another. So let's ask God to help us today, to help me teach his word and to help all of us including myself hear his word and grow will you bow your heads with me in prayer our father in heaven help me to preach and help all of us to hear we pray in jesus name amen open your bibles if you haven't to first corinthians chapter 13 if you're using one of our church bibles you'll find today's text on page 902 Three verses here. That's it. Three powerful verses. Three verses and three scenarios, and each one of them sounds like this. If I do or have blank without blank, then blank. <laughs> if you look at each of those verses, that's, that's the obvious pattern here. In each of these verses, there is a remarkable ability or ministry or service. That is what Paul imagines doing or having in each verse. And then there is a missing motivation. Each of those remarkable acts is without something. And then finally, each verse ends with a final assessment. So Paul's point, we'll see in each of these verses, in each of these scenarios that he imagines, is that remarkable ministry or service without love means nothing. And he's just going to say that three times. Remarkable ministry or service. No one would doubt how remarkable or special or even seemingly selfless it is, but 
each of those things without love, they mean nothing. Paul Barnett is a commentator and he writes this. In each case, the if clause introduces a gift used in and for the congregation. But where a gift is not inspired by love for the persons who are the recipient of ministry, the exercise of that gift is futile since it fails in its object to build up others. That's the point. So let's get into these verses. We'll take them one at a time. And in order to fill in each of those blanks, we'll ask three questions of each verse. The first question we'll ask is, what is happening? What is happening here? That is, what is Paul doing? The second question is, what is missing? We have what he's doing, but what is the missing motivation? And then the final question we'll ask of each verse is, what is the result? That is, what is Paul's final assessment of each action? So, what is happening in each verse? What is missing? And then what is the result? So let's look at scenario number one. And that's in verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak, if, this is an imagined scenario, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the first thing to notice here is that Paul is not pointing the finger with these imagined scenarios. He doesn't say, if, if you do these things without. Rather, he says, if I. Three times, if I, verse 1. If I, verse 2. If I, verse 3. Paul imagines that he is guilty. He imagines that he could be guilty of each of these loveless acts of service. So instead of pointing the finger at the Corinthians, he's actually pointing the finger at himself, which is a very humble way to put this. It's also a very wise way to put this. It disarms those who are reading what he's writing. So let's ask the three questions. Number one, what is happening in this verse? What is Paul doing in this imagined scenario? Well, he writes, if I Speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So the remarkable ability in verse 1 is speaking in tongues. We touched on that last week. This was an ability that was given to Christians to speak forth the word of God in languages that they had not learned. It was used by God to spread the gospel in the early church, as well as to validate the authority and the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. That gift, we read, was first imparted to the apostles at Pentecost, and then we see a few examples in the book of Acts, and then here in 1 Corinthians. That's it. It's not talked about anywhere else in the Bible, but it was common 
in Corinth. You can imagine what that would be like. How incredible it would have been to witness this. And you might imagine that if that was happening, that it would have been common for people to look up to these speakers and to look up at those who had this ability and to to marvel at them. In fact, we know that this was the most desired and prized gift in Corinth. Paul's going to have to rebuke them for that in future chapters. So Paul is imagining himself speaking in these tongues. And not only that, but let's say that he could even speak in the language of the angels, is what he says. Not just language in other human tongues, but let's imagine in this scenario that I could even speak in the language of angels. He doesn't. Paul didn't. No one does. This is the only place in the Bible where this is imagined, but Paul is using hyperbole and exaggeration to make his point. Let's say that I can speak. I have this amazing gift to speak in any language, including the language of angels. Let's say I do this amazing thing, even more amazing, Corinthians, than what you have seen taking place in your church. So that's what's happening. Well, second question, what is missing? Let's go back to the verse. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Love is missing. Love is missing here. An amazing ability, but without love. Love is at the very center of the Christian life. If you're here and you're new to Christianity or you're new to Jesus, you're new to the gospel, you're new to church and you don't really know what Christianity is, you don't really know what a Christian is, we really could boil a lot of that down and say that at the heart of being a Christian is love. Love is at the center. Let me quote you from Jesus himself in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And this is after his closest followers are asking him to like boil it down. They say, what's the most important thing here? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You've got to love God. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So at the very heart of the Christian life, at the very center of the Christian life, it's love. Love for God and love for others. Now, we could obviously go on and on about love. And we don't want to get too far, I think, this morning into a definition for love. That's what Paul will do in the next verses, in verses 4 through 7. He's really going to explain what love is. But 
it's helpful to at least have a sort of working definition for today. He's going to mention it three times. So what is this love? The Greek word is agape. It will be described in verses 4 through 7, but it means affection. It means warm regard for and interest in another. To quote Paul Barnett again, his definition, he says, By love, Paul means a quality of others-centered concern, of others-centered concern that looks to the genuine needs and welfare of a person or persons beyond oneself. According to John Piper, love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. So let's just say that love is the costly effort to do what is best for the beloved. When you love, it is a costly effort. It costs you something. It's not easy. It's a costly effort that does what is best for the beloved. Not necessarily what they want. It's not to make them or see them happy in any given moment, but it is to do what you really think is best for them. What will be for their ultimate joy and their ultimate hope and their ultimate peace. Which means that often, for you kids that are here, there are times where mom and dad will be loving you and it will not feel like love. But your moms and dads, they know what is best for you. And sometimes hard words, sometimes hard consequences are what is good for you so that you would grow up to know and love God. So love is this costly effort that says, I don't just want to give you what you want. I don't want to just do what makes you happy. I want to do what is best for you. I want it to go well for you. And so we're loving someone when we exercise that costly effort to do what is best for the person we love. So what Paul is imagining here in verse 1 is amazing words, amazing speech, amazing eloquence, but without love in the heart. It is not motivated by love. So let's ask the third question now. So what's the result of that? If he does that, those amazing words, the speaking in tongues of men and angels, but there is no love in his heart, what is his final evaluation of this loveless speaking? Let's look back at the verse. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's the result? A noisy gong. A clanging cymbal. That sound would have been familiar to the Corinthians. Apparently that was a common practice during pagan ritual 
worship. Our speech, of course, should be like a beautiful instrument. It should be a blessing to those who hear. But Paul says that if great speech, even if speaking in the tongues of men or angels, is not motivated by love, then it, and actually he doesn't say it, no, he says the person. The person speaking, they're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm sure that Nick this morning when he was on this electronic drum set hit a cymbal. And it worked. And it sounded good. And it complemented what was happening musically. Because that wasn't the only thing he did. You can imagine if he just sat there with a cymbal or a cowbell and he just banged over and over and over and over again. You'd want to leave the room. It would just be, it would just be noise at that point. That's Paul's point. And it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how amazing your words are. If it's not coming from a heart of love, it's just noise. Everybody else may tell you how great it is. Everybody else may tell you how wonderful it is. And God is in heaven doing this. So, if I have this remarkable ability, but I'm not doing it for the common good, and I'm not doing it to build up the church, I have some other agenda, it is not from love, then I am just a loud, obnoxious noise. So what's Paul's conclusion? Well, someone speaking in tongues of men or angels without love is a noisy gong or cymbal. So let's move on now to the second scenario. Verse 2. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Question number one, what's happening? What does he say? If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. So he says prophetic powers. This is the ability to receive and pass on revelation from God. And to what degree does Paul say here? He's using hyperbole again. He exaggerates. Imagine he is saying that he is able to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. No one understands all mysteries and all knowledge. That would be to be omniscient. Even in heaven we will not be omniscient. God alone understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Paul goes on and states a second remarkable ability. Imagine that he has all faith. All faith. The most faith. So that he's able to do what? So as to remove mountains. Remember Jesus talked like that. That metaphor of moving mountains in Jewish literature refers to the impossible. That's the point. 
We use it similarly. You'd have to move mountains to do that. It means to do something that is utterly impossible. Mark 11, 23, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, in other words, has faith, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So that's what's happening. Paul says, imagine that I have prophetic powers to the nth degree. I understand all mysteries. I've got all the knowledge and I have got all the faith. What's missing in this scenario? Look back at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and here it is again, but have not love. So again, love is the missing motivation. There's some other agenda here. This is not costly. This is not really concerned with what is good and what is best for the beloved. And so it is knowledge without love. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. Some of you have a little knowledge. Some of you have a lot of knowledge. It really doesn't matter without love. I mean, isn't that Paul's point? You could have all the knowledge. Let's just say you have all the knowledge. You've got a photographic memory and everything you read, everything you see is just locked in your mind forever. And you somehow have gained access to every piece of knowledge. So you know it all. What an amazing thing. But if you don't have love in your heart, That's missing. There's something missing. This is faith without love. So what's Paul's final evaluation of this loveless prophesying? This loveless faith even? How does the verse end? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. If you have all the knowledge you could possibly have but you don't love, you are nothing. What a thing to say. Not you haven't arrived You're something, but there's something missing. Uh, He says, you are nothing. If I have all this understanding, if I have all this faith, and yet I do not love, I am nothing, Paul writes. So again, if, if I have this remarkable gift, but I'm not using it for the common good, I'm not doing it to build up the church, I have some other agenda. It is without love in my heart, then I am nothing. So what is Paul's conclusion in verse 2? Someone with all knowledge and all faith, but without love, is nothing. By this point, if we're not thinking this already, 
Love is very important. If there's anything as I evaluate myself and as I look at my own heart, if there's anything I want to find there, it's love. Because apparently nothing else matters. All these gifts, all these abilities, but no love. I am nothing. Let's move on to the third and final scenario found in verse 3. By now we know how this is going to go. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is a disturbing verse. I think you'll see why. This verse disturbed me this week. It, it disrupted me. So what's happening? Let's ask our questions. What's happening? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, so giving away all I have, not some of it, all of it. It reminds us of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Rich young ruler is coming to Jesus and basically asking, how do I get to heaven? Like, show me, show me the steps. What do I need to do here? And Jesus knows his heart and tells him to do something that would be impossible for him to do. Because he does not want to do it. Mark 10 verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, and so here are hard words from Jesus that this guy did not want to hear. And yet, what was in the heart of Jesus when he said them? Love. So Jesus, looking at him, he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Because this guy had done a lot of good things. He said, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And then it says the man went away sad. And do you know why he was sad? Because he had a lot of stuff. He didn't want to give it up. Jesus was evaluating and helping him to evaluate his own heart. How much does he really love God? Which is what was most important. So Paul says, imagine that I do that. I, I give away everything I've got. And then he goes farther. Did you hear what he said? Delivering up my body to be burned. This would be like religious persecution. This would be the act of being called upon to die for what you say you believe in. To die for what you say your faith is in. I mean, that, that instantly reminds us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. I mean, that was, they, were, they were willing to be burned. They were be willing to be thrown into that furnace that King Nebuchadnezzar had heated up seven times more than usual, so hot that when the guys got close to throw them in, they died. And you remember their words? Maybe the boldest words in the Bible said by humans. They said, 
in verse 17 and 18 of Daniel 3, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. And this is the best part, what they say next. So they said, God is able. You go ahead, throw us in your fire. We're not backing down. We're not going to worship you. We're going to worship God. So do what you got to do. But if you throw us in this fire, God is able to deliver us, and He will deliver us. And then they said, but if not, what is that? God, your will be done. So if God does not rest, but if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Paul says, let's say that I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm willing to do that. Everything I have, I give away. I'm called upon to sacrifice my own life to give it up. Let's say I do that. I mean, every Christian must be willing to pay the ultimate price. Every Christian must be willing to pay the ultimate price to give up all they have. Even their own bodies. This is, Jesus said so to His disciples and to us. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross and follow me. For, and this is so beautifully said, for, for whoever would save his life, like try to hold on to your life and what you want, and your agenda, and your stuff. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that is, it's yours, God. It's not my life. Whoever loses his life for, Jesus says, my sake, will find it. So what's missing in this scenario? The same thing as in the previous two. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love. That's the disturbing part. To me, that was startling. Because when I read that, I asked myself, how is that possible? How is that possible to give up everything you have? How is that possible to sacrifice your own life to do that without, I thought that was love. That is love, isn't it? To give away all that I have for others, to be willing to pay the ultimate price and to sacrifice myself. Jesus himself, didn't he say, greater love has no one than this, than he who would lay down his life for another that's love, Jesus said. And yet Paul is saying here that here's a scenario. You give up all you have, including your own life, but you don't have love. So I, I take this verse to mean that it is possible to give away all you have and to even give up your own life and not be motivated by love. It is possible 
to offer up the ultimate sacrifice without love in your heart. Anthony Thistleton, he says that whatever the reading, the logic of verse 3 is precisely parallel to that of verse 2, where the previous verse states that however gifted a Christian may be, without love, he or she is utterly nothing. Verse 3 states that whatever personal sacrifices a Christian makes, even self-sacrifice in death, if all this is without love, counts for nothing. Even parting with one's possessions to feed the poor may be done without love unless this springs from love that is from genuine concern. Its value, Paul insists, is precisely nil. Listen, there is nothing you can do to secure heaven. There is not a single thing you can do to prove that you are worthy of heaven. There is not a single thing you can do to prove that you deserve or are worthy of God's love. That's what this verse is telling you. You can do the ultimate thing like there's nothing better. You see somebody do that, you just assume they love God. You just assume they love others. You just pronounce them on the spot as a lover of God and a lover of others. Like St. Nicholas, they just give up their riches. They, they were persecuted. They were burned at the stake, whatever it is. Of course they loved God, you say. Of course they loved others. But what are we learning here? No, it's possible to even do that. The greatest thing that you could possibly do. And if you don't have love in your heart for God and for others, it means absolutely nothing. So there's nothing. Get that out of your head. There is nothing you can do. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be successful enough. You cannot be popular enough. You cannot be famous enough. You cannot be praised enough in your church. You cannot be looked up to by enough people. You cannot be complimented enough. There is no good thing you can do. Even if you tomorrow give up every single thing that you have and you die. If there is not love for God in your heart and if you are not motivated by love, What's the result? Paul says, you gain nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So if I give up all I have, including my own life, but I'm not truly doing it for the common good, I'm not truly doing it to build up the church. I've got some other agenda. There's not love in my heart. Then I gain nothing. If love is not the motivation here, what is? Why would you give up everything you have? 
Why would you sacrifice your own life if you're not motivated by love? Paul says this person gains nothing. I think that is a clue that this person is out to gain something. What is this loveless sacrifice? Isn't it strange to put those words together? Here's another one. What is this loveless generosity? What is it looking to gain? Heaven, maybe? Heaven? I may not really love God. I may not really love others, but this should seal the deal. I'll give up all that I have. I'll even be willing to sacrifice my own life. Maybe you give up what you have to get approval from others. Maybe it's all to be thought well of by other people. Even worse, maybe it's to gain the approval of God. God says in the Old Testament, please, please. Those are filthy rags you're bringing to me. You really think you can buy my affection? You really think that there's something that sets you apart from everyone else and now because of that, I will set my love and affection on you? Please. With filthy rags, you try to gain my approval. Do you give to get something? Or do you give because you've received everything? Do you give so that God will love you? Or do you give because God loves you? Those could not be farther apart in terms of motivation. Do you give to get something from others or to get something from God? Or do you give because you've already received everything from God? Do you give so that God will love you? Or do you give because God loves you? So what is Paul's conclusion at the end of verse 3? Someone giving away all they have, even their own life without love, gains nothing. Now, in conclusion, Pastor David Strain, he writes that Paul is saying, it is even possible to conform your life externally to the pattern and to the commands of Jesus Christ and gain nothing and be nothing and it would be for nothing if love is not at the heart. We could conform ourselves externally to talk, look, and act the part, and no one could tell the difference between us and a lover of God. But if internally there isn't 
love for God, if internally there isn't love for others, then I am nothing, what I do is nothing, and I will gain nothing. It's not about what you do. It is about who you love. Loveless preaching is talked about in these verses. Loveless teaching. Remarkable, but loveless abilities and acts of service. Loveless knowledge. Loveless faith. Loveless sacrifice. Loveless generosity. Most of you are probably already applying these verses. Check yourself. Well, isn't that what you're doing? That's what I've been doing this week. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by it right now as I preach. Check yourself. Check your agenda. Check your motivation. Check your heart. Listen to how Charles Hodge put this. I cannot say this better. A man may give away his whole estate or sacrifice himself and be in no sense the gainer. He may do all this from vanity or from the fear of perdition or to purchase heaven and only increase his condemnation. Religion, and he means that in a good way, as in devout love for God, religion is no such easy thing. Men would gladly compound by external acts of beneficence or by penances for a change of heart, but the thing is impossible. Now let me read that line again. He says, men would, we would gladly do this, compound by external acts of beneficence or by penances for a change of heart, but the thing is impossible. He's saying, it's not that easy. I mean, if it was that easy to change your heart and like create love for God and love for others in your heart just by doing the right things, well, we would all do that. It's just A, B, C. Let me give you your list. Do A, good job. Do B, good job. Do C, good job. Now you go to heaven. Now you love God and God loves you. If it were that easy, just do this. If you don't do that, you'll go to hell. What's hell? Hell, no, I don't want to go there. What do I do? Just do this. Just one, two, three. Do these good things. You know, give away what you have. Be willing to sacrifice. And then your heart will be changed. No, that's impossible. You can't change your heart. Try. Go ahead. There's someone right now that you don't love. So right now, love them in your heart, well up with affection for them. You cannot do that. Your heart needs to be changed. We're born with a heart that does not love God. So we're learning these verses and I can't just do the right things and be the right person and then 
I'll be okay with God and at peace with God or he'll change my heart. No, this is something that I cannot do on my own. He goes on, thousands indeed are deluded on this point and think that they can substitute what is outward for what is inward. But God, he requires the heart. And without holiness, the most liberal giver or the most suffering ascetic can never see God. The Bible tells us that we love, those of you who do love God, those of you who do love Jesus, we love because Jesus first loved us. It was him first, not you. You didn't say, I love you, Jesus, and he said, okay, me too. <laughs> I was finally, I was waiting, wasn't sure, okay, I'll love you back. But that would be terrible. That is not God's love. We love because God first loved us. And because God has first loved us, and we've come to know of God's love for us, and that he has accepted us in Jesus Christ, now we give. Now we control our mouth and our words and we teach. And now we're willing to lay down our life. Because we love God. We're not trying to get God's love. We give because we've received God's love. We've come to believe the gospel. The good news that Jesus came and he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. And what has happened to each one of you Christians? You just tweaked that statement a little bit. Maybe you heard it a bunch of times and then one day it was Jesus came, lived, suffered, died and rose from the dead in my place. In my place. It wasn't just a story anymore. It was your story. He died in my place. He rose from the dead in my place so that I could be reconciled to Him. And yet, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Not after I figured it out or got cleaned up or gave away all that I have or did this amazing thing or. While I was still a sinner, hating God, he loved me and gave himself for me. And then at some point in my life, by the work of his Holy Spirit, he came down and, and he opened my eyes and he opened my ears to know that he loved me. And so I give and I obey and I worship and I honor him because he has accepted me. Not so that he will accept me. So if you're here today and you are a Christian, check your heart, check your motivations, check your agenda. 
Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you say the good things that you say? Why do you do the good things that you do? Are you trying to get God to approve of you? Are you trying to get others to approve of you? Are you trying to purchase heaven? Or is it out of love for God? For those of you who are here today and you are not Christians, then maybe after hearing this message and hearing about what a Christian is, maybe you thought you were before you came into this room. That happens all the time, and now you realize, I don't think I am a Christian. Well, the promise of that gospel is that if you right now would believe that gospel and turn to Jesus and stop trusting in yourself or someone else, but trust in him alone for salvation, the promise is that if you will do that right now, you're saved. Right now. And then you live to honor him and follow him and worship him. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we come to this part of our service that everything is moving toward every Sunday, and that is the Lord's Supper. We do every week what Jesus commanded us to do as a church. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're remembering his death and we're proclaiming his death. We're remembering the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. And it is made real to us again through these symbols of the bread and the juice. And we are proclaiming to one another the love that Christ has for his people. So in just a minute, we'll have leaders up front to serve you. If you are a baptized believer, you are a Christian, and you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been united to Him, you have been united to His body, and you are part of a church, whether it is this or another one that preaches the same gospel you heard today, please take communion with us. If you come forward through the center aisle, and then return to your seat with the bread and the juice, and we'll... Take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the sacrifice that has been made through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love for us, for taking on our sin, though you knew no sin, so that we could receive your goodness, your righteousness, and be brought to peace with God who we have offended so badly. So in response to your word today, we now turn our attention to this sacrifice. May you be glorified, God, as we remember and proclaim Christ our substitute so that we could be reconciled to you 
to enjoy life with you and with one another forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.